Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 61. We're going to read just the first three verses of this chapter, although the whole thing is very rich, and then we'll turn to our sermon text in uh, Acts chapter 12. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Amen. Now please turn to Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when, a, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. 
Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Amen. You may be seated. Back in May of this year, I enjoyed getting to go to the Banner of Truth Ministers Conference over in Elizabethtown and I think everybody pretty much that I talked to agreed that uh, the most impactful talk that we heard there was uh, probably the very first one. It was the opening address by uh, Ian Hamilton. You may have heard of him. Um, he was preaching on a couple passages from Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And so this preacher said, In Christ, we are always triumphing, no matter what else is going on in our lives. Uh, Always triumphing. But then in chapter 4, Paul says something else. He says that he was always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We who live, he says, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And that, that pair of ideas, he said, is really central to the Christian life. It's defining for the Christian life. It's, it's what communion with God looks like in this life. Always triumphing and always dying. That means that we shouldn't get unwisely kind of elated by the joys and successes and the progress, the high points of the Christian life, so much that we get kind of caught off guard and discouraged by the times of, of suffering, hard things. And why is that? Well, it's because we understand from the outset that the Christian life is supposed to take the shape of the cross in this life. But it also means that when the Christian life is the hardest, when the suffering is the most intense, when the weakness is overwhelming, that we must not despair because it is at those very moments that we can say, I am always triumphing. Christ is always, even now, especially now, leading us in triumphal procession. Always triumphing, always dying. It's not that one is sometimes true in the Christian life and then, and then sometimes the other is true and we go back and forth between triumphing and dying. No, what we're saying is both are true always 
in the Christian life. Always triumphing, always dying. That's the Bible's paradigm for the Christian life. And it's a paradigm, I think, that we can see very clearly borne out here in Acts chapter 12 in the life of the church and some of the individual characters, which covers um, the martyrdom of James, the rescue of Peter, and the demise of Herod. And those are just going to be our three very basic points today following the sequence of events. So first, the martyrdom of James. Uh, That always triumphing, always dying dynamic is uh, true not just in the individual Christian life, it's true of the life of the church as a body. Um, The last several chapters, we've primarily been focusing on some of the great triumphs of the church, right? So there's been the conversion of Saul, there's the healing of um, Aeneas, the raising of Tabitha, the conversion of Cornelius and his household and friends. Um, And then there's the great evangelization of Antioch. That was amazing. Uh, One mountaintop after another. They just keep getting higher. But chapter 12 uh, goes on now to remind us that that first-generation church, for all of those advances by just leaps and bounds, one after the other, was also a church very much under attack um, with very powerful and deadly enemies seeking to destroy it. Um, Back in chapter 7, we covered the martyrdom of Stephen, and that was followed, of course, by the widespread persecution of the church by Saul uh, prior to his conversion. Um, but now there is a new enemy who appears on the scene. A new enemy, but with a very familiar name, right? And that's no accident, because think back through the Gospels and... Uh, including the Gospel of Luke, but the other Gospels as well. Um, Who was it who tried to kill the baby Jesus at the very beginning of his life on earth when the wise men asked him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Well, it was Herod. In that case, it was Herod the Great, a different different Herod, the original Herod. Um, Who was responsible then for the death of of John the Baptist. Well, again, it was Herod, also a different Herod. That was uh, Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great from Jesus' infancy. Um, It was that same Herod, Herod Antipas, uh, who was involved in the trial of Jesus himself leading up to the crucifixion. So we see him there. And um, the Herod who's mentioned here, then, is that Herod's uh, successor. He's He's the next one in line. This is here in chapter 12, this is a man named Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, and if the name Agrippa sounds familiar, it's because we're going to meet Herod Agrippa II, who's just called King Agrippa, later in Acts. So it's, it's a little confusing because so many of the names are similar. Um, but we're dealing with four different Herods, uh, successors in the same family line, with similar, not, not identical positions. Some of them were more powerful than others. Some controlled more territory than others under... Um, the oversight of the Romans in Israel at different times. But it's significant that Luke doesn't refer to them, uh, to all of them by their specific individual names. Many times he simply refers to them as Herod. And why is that? Well, it's because Luke is intentionally, as a good historian, emphasizing the common thread that connects them all. All of them, one after the other, down along the line, they are all enemies of Jesus and enemies of his people. One after the other, they're all doing basically the same thing. 
Remember John in Revelation when he gives us that vivid word picture of the dragon who's standing before the woman who's in labor, about to deliver her baby, and there's the dragon waiting to devour it as soon as it's born, as Herod the Great tried to destroy the baby Jesus as soon as he was born. And now as Herod Agrippa, we could say, is trying to destroy the infant church uh, by taking out its leadership at the very top. Uh, James, the brother of John, of course, is one of the twelve apostles. Uh, You remember Peter, James, and John, that that inner circle of the twelve. They were the three who were the very closest to Jesus. Uh, It was only Peter, James, and John who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. It was just those three. Um, At this point, we should just make note of another uh, names issue in the book of Acts, which is just like there are many Herods, there are also at least two people, significant people named James um, in the New Testament, uh, who are very important in leadership at this stage in the church's history. There's James the Apostle, who's martyred here, one of the twelve apostles, John's brother, one of the two sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, Jesus called them, Mark chapter 3. So there's that James. There's also James the brother of Jesus. James the brother of Jesus was not an apostle, although he is the author of the book of James, uh, the letter of James, later in the New Testament. And he also um, takes on a significant leadership role in the church later on. And in fact, he's mentioned later in this chapter, Peter says, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, James the apostle has already been executed at the beginning of the chapter. So when he mentions James in verse 17, he's talking about James, the brother of Jesus, who appears later at the Jerusalem council and, and so on. All right. So that's a little bit of intricate details. Just be aware that there's two different Jameses here. And the one who's, who's killed by Herod is James the Apostle, son of Zebedee. All right. It says he gets killed with the sword. Um, that likely, or at least possibly, means he was beheaded. Um, and that would be significant for a couple reasons. One, it would connect his death closely with the death of John the Baptist, right? who was beheaded. Um, Again, tying those themes together of Herod's opposition, the various Herod's opposition to God's people. Um, Also, commentators say that would suggest a Roman form of execution, uh, possibly as a political criminal. Um, There there would be this this idea that he's being treated as a threat to Roman rule. Why? Because he is proclaiming a different kingdom led by a different king, King Jesus. And just before we go on, it's worth noting at this point, don't miss this, Jesus does not rescue James from being executed. You think if if Christ could rescue Peter miraculously, as he does later in the chapter, don't you think that he could have rescued James if he had wanted to, intended to? And surely he could have, just as he could have called 12 legions of angels to his own defense in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he chose not to do that. Missionary John Payton, who worked in the Pacific Islands in the 1800s, once recalled the peace that it brought him in his work when he says, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. We are immortal until our master's work with us is done. Jesus rescued Peter and not James, 
Uh, not because his power was limited in some way in one case and not in the other, um, but because he had different purposes in the lives and the, and the deaths of these two men. And both of these men lived and died with the settled hope of Christ's resurrection power. Reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they tell the king, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, implying even if not, we're still not going to bow down to your image. Paul says in Romans, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. And so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We're not our own. We belong to him, and that's our only comfort, right? In life and in death. We don't have any guarantee that Jesus is going to miraculously uh, save our skins in this life. We don't have any guarantee that he's going to um, give us good health. He's going to give us uh, abundant wealth or any of those other things that are so broken and fragile in this world that is under the curse and that's falling apart, that's passing away. There's no guarantee of those things in the Christian life. And remember that as God's people, we are always triumphing in Christ and we're also always dying because we're following a crucified Savior. But even when we do feel that very keenly, that always dying aspect, as James did, we must never forget that it is in that moment, not just later, but at that time, in the midst of it, that you are also always triumphing in Christ. Okay, enough on that. The, um, let's move on. The, the Jewish opponents of the church are uh, very happy with Herod uh, because he kills James. Um, history suggests that this particular Herod was pretty popular with the people he governed, partly uh, because on his mother's side, this, this particular Herod was actually descended from the Maccabees. And so he didn't have that stigma of being an ethnic outsider, uh, at, like, for example, Herod the Great, who was um, Edomite slash Arabian um, now, he's, uh, uh, he's, he's playing to that popularity here uh, with the people by um, using his power to attack the Christian church. It's a good political move. And when he sees how much they like his first strike against the Apostle James, he thinks, well, if one is good, then two will be even better. And so he goes on to arrest Peter. Notice that the arrest of Peter takes place around the time of Passover. Why is that significant? Again, it connects Peter's suffering with the history of Jesus' suffering. Again, partly at the hands of earlier Herods. Uh, I think the Last Supper, the evening before the crucifixion, that was a Passover meal. And now here's Peter, likewise arrested during the same feast. And Herod has plans to execute him around the same time that Jesus was killed, time of year. Um, And you notice how closely he's being guarded here. It says there's four squads of soldiers rotating in and out. It's not like somebody's going to fall asleep and... Um, you know, just zone out. He, he, he probably was actually chained to the guards on either side and shackles, like handcuffing yourself to somebody, um, one on each side, so he couldn't go anywhere without them. Uh, and what's happening is Luke is emphasizing how unlikely, even impossible in human terms, it was for Peter to escape. It's like when Nebuchadnezzar heats the fiery furnace seven times over. Um, it's hotter than usual. But in verse 7, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, it says. So Christ has sent from heaven a supernatural rescuer 
um, into this situation that is, from a human point of view, past any kind of hope. And so Peter follows the angel outside, and of course at first he thinks that he's dreaming. It's not until the angel leaves and he's actually standing there outside the prison. He realizes, oh, wait a second, I'm actually, I'm actually out here. I don't need to... Somebody pinch me or something. Um, and I love verse 11 when he says, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. I think there's an echo there of what we've heard Peter already say earlier in the book uh, about Jesus. Again, it's connecting the experience of the apostles with the experience of Jesus. So much of Acts is the life of the church kind of recapitulating or going back over things that happened to Christ, but now they're being lived out in the life of the church in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, remember from chapter 2, where he says, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Uh, chapter 3, You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So, um, God the Father rescued Christ from all that his opponents were expecting when they crucified him. God turned everything upside down. God flipped the script on the people who thought that they were destroying and defeating Jesus, and actually it was they whose purposes were being overturned and by the very cross on which Jesus died. And uh, now God's doing the same thing again with Peter. Christ had the authority to lay down his life, but he also had the authority to take it up again. And now that risen and ascended and reigning Christ from heaven is able to save his servants at will. He's able to save them through death, as in the case of James. And he is also able to save them from death, as in the case of Peter. He demonstrates both in the lives of these two apostles. Well, Peter next uh, hurries to the place where he knows that there are a lot of Christians who have gotten together to pray for him. Um, And there's this wonderful sense of suspense as Peter's fugitive here, and you can kind of imagine him sort of keeping in the shadows, uh, going from place to place, checking to see if anybody's following, you know, checking the six. Um, and he gets there, and he, and he knocks on the door, and the servant girl named Rhoda, um, poor Rhoda's so excited when she hears his voice that she forgets to open the door to him. So there's kind of this comical uh, moment where Peter's kind of left standing outside trying to get in, and but it gives Luke an opportunity to highlight what's going on in the church, where um, their faith is at this point, uh, what they're thinking and feeling as they pray for Peter's release. But, but when it actually happens, they think, well, there's, there's no way that, that could be who's outside. You're out of your mind, they tell her. They even fall back on this sort of superstitious kind of folk religion idea that, well, maybe it's his angel. Um, it's hard to say exactly what that means. It might have something to do with kind of a popular belief, not from the Bible, in um, what's called guardian angels. That's not a biblical idea, by the way, um, uh, of these individual guardian angels. But, but in that culture, people thought maybe sometimes your guardian angel could kind of look like you if it appeared to somebody. And so there's this, they're willing to go with superstition. They're willing to say that Rhoda's crazy. It reminds me of Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the professor's like, well, do you think, do you really think she's crazy? Do you ever have, have any evidence of that? Has she ever acted crazy before? But that's where they're willing to go rather than believing something that seems unbelievable. The one thing they're not ready to do 
is to think that maybe God has actually answered their prayers. Remember from verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by, to God by the church. Why have they gathered here in their, this house? They have gathered to pray that God would rescue Peter. And that's not all, because it would be one thing if something like this had never happened before. If, if, if they were asking for an unprecedented miracle. But that's not true either, because what already happened once before in chapter 5, the Sadducees arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. The Lord has done this before. And yet they're so slow to think that maybe the Lord will actually do it again. Reminds me of the often repeated tale of the farming community community that gathers for a prayer meeting during a drought to ask God for rain, but only one little boy brings an umbrella with him. Kind of a funny story, but it makes an important point. How often when we pray do we really believe that God is able and he is willing to help us? I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism ends. The very last question when it says, it is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. Isn't that amazing? It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. So God is able to do not just what we ask. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3. And he's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9. And that does not mean that his answers will always look like exactly what we ask or exactly what we think. Again, he's able to do more abundantly than that. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our, our, our thoughts. I think these, these people probably also prayed earnestly for James. Right? Some of the same kinds of things. They prayed for him. And the answer in that case looked quite different. But the second answer should remind us to pray expectantly. Never to pray with a sense of resignation. Never to pray thinking, oh, I, I know it's going to happen, but I'm supposed to pray for something different, and so I guess I will, but everybody knows what's really going to be the outcome. No, we are to pray expectantly, trusting, confident that God is good and generous and kind and able. As the hymn says, he is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. That is what prayer of faith looks like. Well, I'm going to go on now to the end, looking at the end of the story for Herod. First of all, Herod is at a loss to find out what's happened to Peter. The soldiers, sentries who were guarding the prison, end up being put to death. He's confounded. Remember, the Lord has rescued Peter from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is something that he cannot explain. Herod is utterly defeated. 
And yet he doesn't learn his lesson. He doesn't learn that perhaps there is a king higher than he, that the king that he executed James for proclaiming is actually the one who is the king of kings over even Herod himself and all of his power and all of his popularity, which really seems to be uh, a priority for Herod, and that very popularity turns out to be his downfall in the end. Or at least the pride that eats that popularity up. As Herod ends up being the one who's eaten up by worms. <laughs> oh, so gruesome, isn't it? Um, there's a parallel account of this in Josephus. This is a um, well-attested historical event even outside the uh, New Testament of, of this, this whole situation. Uh, Josephus talks about him being dressed in silver garments and and then he goes on to describe him being uh, dying of severe pain in his abdomen. And Luke, the physician, is being a little more specific about what particularly was causing that severe pain in his in his abdomen um, from his yeah, kind of medical point of view. But not just a medical point of view. It's it's supposed to be grotesque. It's supposed to show how far Herod has fallen, and it's in a very ironic way, contradicting his outward show of God-like glory. Think of the serpent. Oh, you will be like God. God tells the serpent on your belly you shall go and you will eat the dust of the ground. Now Herod's the one who gets eaten. I love when Ecclesiastes says, all go to one place. All are from the dust. And to dust, all return. It applies to everybody, including those our culture society thinks of as the gods of our time. As we'll sing in a minute, Psalm 146 says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, because when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, on that very day, his plans perish. What does that same psalm go on to say about the Lord? It says, the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord will reign forever. As Mary prayed, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. That's what God has always done. That is how God works. And that's what God is still doing. It's what God is still doing today. And it's what God has done for us, right? I mean, through the death of Christ, what has God done? He's taken us from our slavery, and our condemnation and sin, and he's made us alive. He's made us righteous. He's made us accepted. And in Christ's resurrection, God has raised us from death to life. He's opened the prison for us. He's carried us to freedom, never to be locked up again in that bondage to what used to hold us captive. And yes, as we walk in communion with Christ, there's a sense in which we are always dying in this life. Dying to self, sharing in his suffering, sharing in each other's suffering. But at the very same time, at the very same time, always, as that preacher reminded me, in Christ we are always triumphing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for 
delivering Peter from death and giving us this history of it. We can wonder at your mighty power. We thank you also for delivering James through death and for the hope that you have given to us that whether we live or whether we die, we are yours. Lord, we ask that you would make us expectant. Lord, make us prayerful people who truly believe that you will hear and answer. Forgive us for our faithlessness. Forgive us for our doubts. Help us in them. And we ask that you would please give us confidence through your word, by your spirit, that although in Christ we are always dying in this life, that that's a privilege because we're sharing his sufferings and we have hope because in him we are also always triumphing. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.